verses 13 through 32. Luke 24, verses 13 through 32. This is the text that the Lord in his providence has given us to focus on this morning, and I want to start, as we always do, by reading the text together. Let's read it. Verse 13, Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was one, the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women, uh, some, of, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophet have, prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked, while he talked to us on the road? And while he opened to us the scriptures. 
Now, what we're seeing here in this text is the resurrected Lord bringing clarity to his confused disciples. That's what we're seeing. The resurrected Lord is bringing clarity to his confused disciples. That's why uh, the title of this message is Clarity from the Christ. And this is part two. This is what the disciples desperately need at this point. They are confused. They are discouraged. They're sad. They're directionless. Their friend is gone. Their teacher is gone. Their faith is shaken. Their expectations of God and of Jesus, of the Messiah, of the kingdom, are flushed. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to believe. They're tossed by their emotions. They are tossed by what people are saying at this point. And at this point, they don't even know how to serve God rightly. And what they need is not for their circumstances to change. What they need isn't for persecution to cease. What they need is not from the Jews and the Romans for their oppression to vanish. What they need isn't to give up their faith and walk away or leave the group of disciples who are also trying to make sense of things and to serve God just as much as these two are. What they need, listen now, what they need is understanding from the word of God. Listen close. What they need is understanding from the word of God. Listen close. What they need is understanding from the word of God. They need understanding so they can see God rightly and that's what's going to turn their mourning into joy. That's what's going to bring clarity. That's going to bring maturity. That's going to bring uh, completeness to their superficial and incomplete understanding. That's what will comfort their souls. That's what will bring explosive fearlessness to their mission. To go tell everybody about the incredible truths they're soon going to understand. So Jesus is going to give them this needed serving of Bible exposition. That is Bible explanation. That's what exposition is. Explanation. And not only Bible exposition, but he's going to give them sovereign illumination. And those two elements... Bible exposition and sovereign illumination will set these disciples straight. They're going to set it's going to set them on a course to effective ministry. It's going to set them on a course 
to stable discipleship. Do you need stability? Do you need stability in your life, in your spiritual journey? Do you need to be effective in your ministry? Well, again, these are the two elements that you need. Bible exposition, sovereign illumination. You see, this is what we need as well there. Let me tell you, listen close, okay? I know it's raining. I know it's easy to be distracted. It's okay. It rains all the time. It's not anything new. Okay, eyes here. This is what you and I need. There are few things more concerning than a confused disciple. There are few things more concerning than a confused disciple. There are few things more concerning than an unstable, constantly vacillating, emotional follower of Jesus. There are few things more concerning than followers of Jesus who are swayed constantly by their emotions, swayed constantly by their thoughts, swayed constantly by their experiences, swayed constantly by what people are saying, swayed constantly by their superficial, immature lack of understanding in the word. It makes that person prone to all sorts of faulty decisions. It leads to all sorts of disappointing results. It has the potential to cause a lot of damage. And most importantly, it's not living how the Lord wants that disciple to live. James 1.6 talks about this kind of person. Verses six through eight. It talks about the disciple who is constantly confused, who is always doubting everything, whose circumstances, emotions, fears, questionings, faulty views of suffering, wavering during times of testing, vacillating between fear and control rather than obedience and trust. James says it even bleeds into their prayer life. And rather than becoming a more steadfast and stable disciple, more firm, more perfected, more complete, they are just like a wave being tossed again by another wind. It says that God can't trust to answer this person's prayers, this disciple's prayers, because God's not going to perpetuate their instability, their fear and control. He's not going to feed it. He wants them to learn to trust him and his truth. And in their instability, he's not going to answer because who knows what they'll do with that answer. And so as the Lord looks at them, James says, he looks at them as one who is double-minded. No matter how sincere, they're double-minded. Sometimes they're thinking, and therefore their words, because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, are from the flesh. And sometimes their thinking is right and according to truth. But you never know what you're getting. 
You never know what you're getting and they don't even know what they're getting. They cross-pollinate between the flesh and the truth, so it's dangerous. Rather than having clear knowledge of the word and just saying, as long as I'm faithful to the word, nothing else matters, they vacillate. James says that they are unstable in all of their ways. They're just like a, a, a grenade that's waiting to go off. And you always have to walk on glass because you're afraid that that is going to go off. What does this person need? Well, James is clear. They need wisdom from God. They need clarity. They need the word of God to bring about stability. Ephesians 4 also talks about this. It says that we're not to be like children, tossed to and fro, carried about even by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, which means someone or something that succeeds in tricking us, or by any emotion or motive or teaching that's tricky. Verse 15 makes it clear that maturity then will come by the truth being made clear in love within the church. That's how that stability will come, and you won't be like that child tossed by every wind of doctrine. Psalm 37, 8 says that the untrusting, confused, fretting person tends only towards evil. Psalm 1 pictures one who is stable, and that comes through what? Understanding the word. So there are not only few things more concerning than a confused disciple, but there are few things less effective than a confused disciple. They can't focus on evangelism because they can't get past themselves. They don't minister to other because they constantly be, need being ministered to. And they create instability among others in the church with their constant confusion. They don't have the knowledge of the word to explain the gospel to those they are trying to reach. And what they really need is for God to give them crystal clear conviction, crystal clear clarity, lasting comfort, unwavering commitment through the word of God once again. And so listen now, Jesus is going to do that for his disciples here. He doesn't want his disciples to be unstable and he doesn't want his disciples to be ineffective. So what he's going to do in this text is provide clarity for the disciples' good, for his glory, for the advancement of the kingdom. And so as we look at this passage, the matter can be divided into two headings. Number one, the confusion in verses 13 through 24. And number two, the clarity in verses 25 through 32. The confusion and the clarity. Very simple. So last week, in verses 13 through 24, we saw the confusion. Verse 13, if you look at your text and follow along as I explain it, tells us that it's Sunday. 
It's the afternoon, the same day as the resurrection. Verse 29, just a few verses later, is gonna tell us that it's near evening on that same Sunday afternoon. Two of the larger group of the disciples are headed to a village. Mark says this village is in the country. And Luke tells us here that the village is named Emmaus. It's about seven miles from the city of Jerusalem. Verse 14, it tells us that the two were discussing what had happened to Jesus. In verses 19 through 24, will tell us what their discussion was about. It was about Jesus's messiahship. It was about the messianic proofs of his miraculous teachings and his uh, uh, miraculous works and his authoritative teachings. So they were talking about his messiahship proven through his works and through his teaching. And yet despite these proofs we see in these verses, despite those clear evidences, they talk about everything that has happened since Monday in Jerusalem meaning their hopes that this was the Messiah were shattered. They say in these verses, 19 through 24, that they hoped he would redeem Israel. They knew that Israel's redemption would require a price from a redeemer, but they didn't understand that the price would be the Messiah's life as a substitutionary payment for sin. They had no category for a dead Messiah. They thought that reconciliation to God's favor would be through the Messiah's victory over their Gentile oppressors. So they discussed all of this. They discussed his innocence. They discussed his rejection by the Jewish leaders. They discussed his arrest. They discussed his death at the hands of the Romans. The fact that he had He had experienced this three days ago, and this was all beginning now to set in with permanency. And yet they also discussed the senseless testimony of the women who told the group of disciples about the vision of angels, that they found no body, no body, literally. And they claimed that he was alive. But they discussed how Peter and John, the two most trusted disciples, went to the tomb and they didn't see the body as the women did. So in our passage in verses 15 through 16, Jesus shows up. He begins walking with them towards Emmaus. And he sovereignly keeps them from recognizing him. And in verse 17, he asks, what are you discussing? They don't know it's him, and he asks a question that he already knows the answer to. And so standing still in their sadness, verses 18 through 24, one of them named Cleopas, supposing Jesus to be a traveler who's in Jerusalem for the Passover, proceeds to tell Jesus everything. And the two disciples here represent the larger group of disciples. They represent all of them. And here's where they're at. They're confused. 
Their understanding of scripture is deficient. Their attitudes are despondent. Their own wisdom has dominated their minds. Christ's own predictions about his rejection, his death, his burial, his resurrection, they haven't registered. They didn't register in their minds. Their expectations of Christ that they desired weren't met. And they were directionless. They were directionless. And that's often where you and I find ourselves. Deficient in our understanding of Scripture. Despondent in our attitudes. Dominated by our own wisdom and experiences and expectations. Divergent from the Lord's words. Desiring certain expectations from God or the church, and therefore directionless in our faith. And what we need more than anything else, more than our circumstances to change, is we need God's word. That's what they needed. So they could be sufficient in their understanding. So they could be steady in their attitudes. So they could be submitted to God's wisdom. And so they could be stable in the Lord's words. And they could be sound in their expectations. Not expecting some different results than what God had planned. They had a clear different expectation from Christ. And that expectation was in no way aligned with what God was doing through Christ. They just made up those expectations on their own from their superficial understanding of the word. This is exactly what's happening here. And so their expectations are not even right. And if they're not met, it's not wrong. His ways and his outcomes were inverted, backwards, upside down from what they expected. They needed right understanding and faithfulness. And all of this will lead them to supernatural effectiveness once they leave this interaction so that the gospel can go out to the world. So Jesus here provides clarity for the confused disciples. So the second heading before you now is the clarity in verses 25 through 32. Let me read it. Clarity now. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. They urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, 
Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Verse 25, Jesus responds to their despondent and confused report with a rebuke by saying, O foolish ones, slow of heart. The omega or the O indicates great emotion in the beginning here. We see the same in Luke 9, 41, Acts 1, Acts 13, 10, Romans 2, 1, Romans 3, 3, Romans 9, 20, Galatians 3, 1, 1 Timothy 6, 20, James 2, 20. The rebuke, it expresses great disappointment. Great disappointment. And their failure, Jesus says, is one of foolishness. The word that's used here is a strong one, anotas, meaning stupid or dull. It's even used in other places in the scripture to describe the unconverted. Other places, it's used to describe the foolishness of this world. These people, these two disciples, were thinking like the world. And it's due to, it says here, their slowness of heart, their slow heartedness. The word here in the Greek is only used in James 1.19 and it's used twice. And it's the idea of not listening. Not listening to what the word says. Rejecting it. You guys know the verses. Quick to listen, slow to speak. The idea is that they were not listening to the word. Verse 26, or verse 25, their confusion stemmed, Jesus says, from their failure to understand and believe and hold to what the Old Testament taught. I mean, this is just word for word what's happening here. He said to them, oh, foolish ones, I've described that. Oh, slow of heart, I've described that. Here's what they're foolish and slow of heart about, to believe all the prophets have spoken. The end of verse 25. What did they not understand and believe about the Messiah, which Jesus was about to make clear? And he will do the same for the rest of the disciples, the exact same thing, listen now, in verses 44 through 47 later on in this same chapter. They understood some things. Listen close. They understood some things. They understood that the Messiah would come. They understood that the Messiah would reign and rule. They understood that the Messiah would establish his kingdom. They believed that it was him, but not that his death and resurrection were essential to his Messiahship, essential what, to what he truly came to bring, which was salvation that his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom first and that he would reign as the Lord over the world and over repenting and believing hearts. So verse 26, look at it. Jesus says, 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? They didn't understand. And now he's saying, wasn't it necessary for this to happen? So this was not only a failure on their part, but it was, listen close, not a failure on his part. They thought the Messiah dying was some kind of failed plan. But it was not only not a failure, it was also predicted. It was not only not a failure, it was also predicted. It was the only way for the Messiah to accomplish his work that he came to accomplish. The only way for the Messiah to accomplish his true work. It was necessary. It wasn't only not a failure, it was necessary. As dying, by dying as a substitute for sinners and raising from the dead, rising to provide new life. If they, listen, if they would have had a right understanding of the scriptures, they would have had the right expectations of the Messiah. The right understanding of the scriptures leads to the right expectations for the disciple. Right understanding leads to right expectations. They would have had the right expectations. An earthly kingdom, victory over Rome, freedom from Gentile oppression, a price of war, superficial view of right standing with God, superficial view of sin, superficial view of the sacrificial system, the priestly work, their true need. It focused their minds and their hearts on what they wanted from God rather than what God actually wanted for them. It fell short of what God actually was doing. God wanted something far greater than what they expected. They had the wrong expectations. They had bad theology, and it stemmed from a faulty understanding of Scripture. It led to confusion It led to despair. It led to a lack of direction. It led to vacillation. It led to their own wisdom and experiences guiding them. It led to not trusting in God's work. And they should have just known and understood God's word, trusted in it, said, that's all that matters. As long as we're faithful to that, who cares how things turn out? We're trusting God, and they didn't do it. He suffered the things necessary to bring salvation. He has, it says, it says he was necessary for him to die and enter into glory. What does that mean? Well, he will enter into his glory. He has already, in some ways, entered into it, the glory of the resurrection. He will have the glory of being believed in as the true son of God. 
the glory of his ascension, the the glory of his heavenly throne, the glory of his return, the glory of his rightful position in heaven, and the glory of his eternal reign. And so then verse 27, look at it. To make all of this clear for these confused disciples, what does he do? Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's what Jesus did. Listen. In his exposition or in his explanation of the scriptures, he started with Moses. Then he moved through all the prophets. This is always the language which summarizes the entire Old Testament. It's the law and the what? Prophets. And so it's referred to, we know, as Moses' writing and the prophets. Jesus walked through the Old Testament and explained it to his disciples. And the writers of the scriptures were writing this truth and Jesus would make it known to them. The writings of Moses, he explained it to them. He explained how the Messiah was predicted. Listen now, was pointed to, was promised. And he explained what the true purpose was of the Messiah's coming. Get a little feedback here. You hear me? And listen now, time would fail. Listen close. Time would fail to make reference to all of what Jesus was explaining here. This would be amazing to be front seat here, wouldn't it? All the prophet, all the prophets is a statement of scope, meaning this. When he got to the prophets from front to back, all of the prophets were explained as how they were pointing to Christ. The earlier writings, Moses and his writings, the law, same thing. This is an eschatological inauguration of the last days, meaning this. Some things would be fulfilled now in his first coming. Some things would be fulfilled later in his second comings. So what did he explain to them? He would surely talk of the prophet whom Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He would surely talk about the one who was cursed, hung on a tree, taken down before sunset in Deuteronomy chapter 21. He would surely talk of the Passover, which pictures him as the final sacrifice in Exodus 12. And then he would point to the Lord's Supper and his death as it being fulfilled. He would surely talk about the manna, which was pictured as the true bread from heaven in Exodus 16. And then he would remind them of his words in John chapter six about it. He would talk about the day of atonement, where he is pictured as the sacrifice and the scapegoat. He would talk about Psalm 69, four, which says that they hated him without cause. He would talk about Psalm 22, Psalm 41, Psalm 69, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, surely, Zechariah 11 and 12. He talked about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, which predicted his triumphal entry to the exact day. He, He would talk about the prediction of his resurrection in Psalm 16. He could go on about the proto evangelium in Genesis 3 15, the killing of the animal to provide for sin in the garden. 
Genesis 3, 21, which predicted him and his covering. He could talk about Cain and Abel's sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice accepted because it was one of blood. Cain's sacrifice rejected because it wasn't in Genesis chapter 4. He could talk about Noah and the ark in Genesis chapter 8. The sacrificial system and the gracious installment that man can avoid God's judgment through the death of an innocent substitute. He could talk about the ram that was offered and provided by God in place of Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22. He could talk about the rock that produced the water in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 17, which pictured him, as Paul interprets in 1 Corinthians 10.4, as the source of all spiritual life. He could talk about the promise of covenant with Abraham and David, the new covenant described by Jeremiah, even listen to this, death itself as a consequence for sin would end up serving the Messiah's purpose. Everything from the beginning to the end pointed to the Christ. His purpose was to save sinners and they would get it. Now you might ask a question here and let me give you some information you might say, if they didn't understand all this, how in the world were, there, were they saved? Now listen close. God counted what they did believe at this point about the Christ for righteousness. Counting what the Christ would do and would accomplish on their behalf Up until now, he would count it back for them. In many respects, at this point, this is still part of the old covenant. The disciples were almost, in a sense, still part of the old covenant. You see, listen now, they would believe what they did understand about the Christ, what was revealed up until this point, and God would count his sacrifice back on their behalf. You see, Listen, this is a once and for all, listen close, please. This is a once and for all time in redemptive history. This is unique. This time never happens again. Just like the Old Testament was, but now listen at this point. Now this new revelation, starting with Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus, this new revelation would clarify the previous revelation. And this is what takes place during the time of the New Testament. The New Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles added to, clarified the truth from the previous revelation, which was the Old Testament. And so the content of the gospel, it must be believed in to be saved, and it becomes clearer and clearer, more precise and more precise in the New Testament. So it would be no longer sufficient to believe in God's promised Redeemer. Now one must believe in Jesus of Nazareth for salvation. Changes would also be made no more sacrifices, no more Saturday Sabbath, 
No more ceremonial dietary restrictions. All of this would be made clear in the New Testament. And that's why, listen close, the New Testament era and the foundational time of the church was built on, Ephesians 2.20 says, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets who came to make clear, to add to, to change, and to make more precise the Old Testament revelation. In Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and the prophets, listen close, listen, those are two distinct groups in the New Testament. And they're given revelation and they're given miracles to confirm their revelation. The Jewish people had to be open to this at this point in redemptive history. The Jews would be hesitant because they valued so much the Old Testament. But they had to be discerning as well because there were false what? Prophets. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21 says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Because the Holy Spirit, at this point, the author of the Bible was giving new revelation during the New Testament times to clarify, to add to the Old Testament, and the Jews who would be hesitant needed to be open to it. And this would be the remainder of God's work. But there were false prophets, so they should test it. What were the tests of the apostles? Well, there was three tests for an apostle. You have to see the resurrected Christ. You have to be personally chosen by Jesus. And you had to have sign gifts that accompanied your message, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says. So they had to test the apostles and they had to test the prophets. What were the tests for a prophet? Deuteronomy 18 says they must always be true. 2 Peter 2 says they must have moral integrity. And Deuteronomy 13 says they must be doctrinally orthodox in line with everything else that has been said up until this point. So Ephesians 3, 5 says this. Listen close. This new detailed information that was clarifying the Old Testament. It says Christ was a mystery which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and to his prophets, New Testament prophets, by the Spirit. So when the possibility then for true apostleship could no longer exist, seeing the resurrected Christ, hand chosen by Christ, signs and miracles to accompany gifts that ended with the death of John, who was the last apostle. This foundational period also, the apostles and then prophets, their counterpart during this foundational era of the church also ceased. Ephesians 4.11 states that they were then replaced by pastors who then teach now this new revelation. Pay attention to me. Blue screen. It's okay. This, these are now teaching the new revelation that clarified the old revelation. And so 1 Corinthians 12, 27, when you see describing, that's why, let me 
say, by the way, the gift of prophecy has been replaced in a sense by preaching. And so when you, just, when you see the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, when describing the gifts, there's apostles and there's prophets as some of the gifts. So when you say, well, how could that cease? Well, the apostles have ceased. So have the prophets, which are in the list. There are clear that some have gone away since that time of New Testament era. And so also all the gifts that accompanied them would also cease in that list, especially the signs of the apostles and prophets. And this all ceased at the close of this new clarifying revelation from God. There's silence. There's silence. The possibility of apostleship and prophet has ceased. The possibility of it. And so now with this new clarifying revelation of the Old Testament being made known, the Jews being told to accept it, then being told, hey, listen, listen to it, but test it. As this has closed, then why did the New Testament close? You might say, when did they decide to close all this? When there was silence, there was no new revelation being given. The possibility of apostleship and New Testament prophet was no longer possible. So when time had gone by and the early church realized there's no new revelation here, what they do? They closed the canon, which is why they closed it, closed the Bible. Now, listen, let me tell you this. It doesn't mean that God can't do miracles. God is God. He can do whatever he wants. But it is not the same gift as being described as a prophet. Those are not the same gifts. God can prompt. We follow what we think he's saying. It's okay to say, I think God's prompting me to do this. I think he said this to me. And you follow it, right? And he opens and closes doors in his providence and you may or not be right, right? And you follow his providence and you follow his revealed will and his word, and your conscience is informed by the word, and you do what you want as long as it doesn't violate conscience or word, and you say, I think God's prompting me to do this, and most of that's informed by the word that you already know. It's okay to say all of that, and God will direct these things, but the gift for the Old Testament, the New Testament eras, because of this revelation now being clarified, was, is, is not that. You see, prophecy at this point was thus says the what? Lord. You can't say that. Don't say that. That's what this was. Jesus is the first example here of clarifying all of the Old Testament. They would have been hesitant. That's why, again, 1 Thessalonians says, test it, but be open to it. Don't despise it. God's clarifying during this time. So Jesus here is doing the same thing. By the way, let me just tell you this. The Old Testament was also closed for the same reason. Silence. No more prophets. No more revelation. That's how they knew it was done. So listen, this is what Jesus is doing. All that to explain to you what Jesus is doing here. He, at this point, is clarifying the Old Testament revelation. The entrance, the reason why the New Testament opened again was the entrance 
of really the final Old Testament prophet or the last, uh, or the first New Testament prophet, which is John the what? Baptist. That's why it opened again. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's clarifying the Old Testament revelation, adding to it, interpreting it, changing it, describing it in light of the gospel now, giving this implications. And this is what every book in the New Testament will do from this point moving forward. It's just going to explain to you all the details of this gospel. And it's going to clarify it in light of the Old Testament understanding of what the scriptures say. So you want to know in more detail what Jesus said here? Read the New Testament. That's what Jesus did. And when he leaves here, because he's the one doing the sovereign illuminating here, when he leaves at this point, then the Holy Spirit will come and he will be the one who will be doing the explaining through the New Testament prophets and apostles. And he will be the one guiding into all truth like Jesus is doing here. And he will be the one who is opening the eyes like Jesus does here for the people to believe and understand the word of God. Right now, Jesus is doing that. Let's close by looking at this last part here, verses 28 through 32. So they drew near to the village to which they were going after Jesus has explained all this. And he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Jesus has made all this revelation now clear. He's made it all clear. By the way, I will say, we, this past weekend, Casey and I were on a date and we were sitting at um, Barnes and Noble and, uh, and a couple of, of Mormon missionaries were attempting to, to evangelize. And, um, and I won't get into all the detail, but I spent an hour I don't think it was, it went how they wanted it to go, right? <laughs> and, um, but I will tell you this, you wanna understand the danger of continued prophecy? Understand the Mormon religion. I mean, that's what it's built on. Continued prophecy equivalent with the word of God. A continued prophet who has inspired language and inspired words. Okay, so, Verse 28 through 32. At this point, I want to jump down to the end, verse 32, because that's when this happens in terms of um, order. Their hearts, then, we know from what Jesus is explaining, are burning. So before their eyes are, listen now, before their eyes are even opened, because of the amazing truth of the scriptures, and because of the amazing truths of Christ and because of the full joy of him fulfilling everything in the Old Testament and because of their innate desire to learn the truth and because Jesus is showing them this and all of that he's saying is anchored in reality and they know God's reality and therefore they're knowing God. 
because of them understanding this sovereign plan and purpose, their hearts are burning. Their hearts are burning before their eyes are even opened. And I think God does this intentionally here to show the power of the divine, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, effective word of God. That's what he's showing here. That's the power of the word. You're a vacillating disciple who doesn't know what happened, interpreting situations and experiences from your own emotions and fears, having your own expectations of everything. You know what you need, just what these disciples need, which anchored them and lit their hearts on fire, which was the word of God. That's exactly what they needed at this point. And that's what it accomplished. Jesus is making that clear. So verse 28, we're almost done here. They come to the to the close, they, they, they come close to Emmaus here. That's where they were going. Verse 28 says they come close to it and acting as if he was going to leave them. And why would Jesus do this kind of fake out here? Well, for the same type of purpose that he asked them the question that he already knew the answers to. He did it to elicit a response from them. And here, again, to demonstrate the effectiveness of the word on these two. Just a few minutes ago, they were so despondent that they stood still and looked sad. They couldn't figure out what was going on. And now Jesus is demonstrating the effect of the explained word. Now, they don't want him to go. Their hearts are on fire. They just want more of this. And just a minute ago, they were about to get to their place in Emmaus, probably curl up in a little ball and lay in bed. And now they just, they just want to keep going. And so they went from complaining to a traveler to wanting more and more of what he was now telling them. The stabilizing, clarifying, confirming effect of the word explained. So he tells them that, or he acts as if he's going and then they say, we want you to stay, verse 29. Literally in the Greek, they used force to make him stay. So he did. He obliged. It was evening, but we know that that's not the real reason he wanted them to stay, that they wanted him to stay. They wanted to hear more from the word. Verse 30, Jesus did what the host would normally do. He, he breaks the bread and he blesses it. This is not the Lord's supper. Jesus is just eating with them and continuing to conversate. Verse 31, just as we saw earlier, no one recognizes the Lord Jesus Christ who's resurrected from the dead unless he opens their eyes, which is the same thing for salvation. You want proof of sovereign illumination needed in the word of God or in salvation? They don't even know who Jesus is without him opening their eyes. So he opens their eyes, and just as he opened Mary's eyes, just by his sovereign choice through calling her what? Her name, right? So here, for some reason, Jesus uses this breaking of bread and prayer of blessing to what made their eyes click, their eyes open. After revealing himself then, as he will do, in miraculous ways, by entering the upper room, etc., he vanishes. Now look at the result and we're done. They're no longer confused. They're no longer vacillating. They're no longer despondent. 
They're no longer emotional. They're no longer wrongly expectant. They're no longer tossed. They're no longer unstable. They're no longer stuck on their own thoughts. Remember, Jesus doesn't want them to be that. Remember, there are a few things more concerning than a confused disciple. And then look at their effectiveness. Remember, there are no things less effective. There are a few things less effective than a confused disciple. And what happens here? Well, the ending, we're gonna see it next time as we pick, as we pick up. They get up. We can see this in verses uh, 33 on, because we already talked about verse 32. I'm just gonna preview it. They get up and in their joy, listen, listen, in their joy, I don't know what's going on here, something. Their joy, in their joy, and in their clarity, they literally go out at this very moment, in the night, in the pitch black, and literally go the exact opposite way that they just came, just a few minutes ago. They go the exact opposite way that they just came to go tell the disciples with the knowledge that only they have that God's plan was being fulfilled and that it was grounded in the scriptures. And that very night, these two would see Jesus again. He's gonna show up there, minus Thomas, and he's gonna do some more explaining. So as we close, we have confused disciples given clarity and given effectiveness through the exposition of the word and the sovereign illumination of God. And my prayer for you is that if you want to be disciples who are clear and not confused, rightly expectant, not vacillating, and you want to be effective to go out with burning hearts to proclaim the information that you know, this is what you need. Exposition of scripture. You don't need your circumstances to change. You need to align your, your, your expectations, your thoughts, the word of God. And you need God in his sovereignty to open your mind so that you understand and to in, in, uh, un, uh, illuminate your heart so that you can see clearly, ignite your, your heart so you can see and feel clearly. And this is what you will be, an effective disciple for Jesus. Let's pray.